Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. The last two months have been quite an adjustment for everyone as we've all had to adopt a new way of life, whether it be social distancing, wearing a mask, or managing our children's education while also managing our jobs. Today's guest, Josh Barber, and I are going to discuss the impact on the commercial real estate industry from the new work-from-home era and delve into its long-term impacts, as well as how office life will be different when we get back to some sense of normalcy, whenever that may be. Josh is the commercial real estate and REIT analyst here at Diamond Hill, and we'll be discussing his recent industry perspective piece that focuses on remote working and the impact to commercial real estate. Josh brings a unique perspective to the work-from-home outlook as he is based in Baltimore, Maryland, and was working from home way before it became so trendy. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Barber. Josh, I want to thank you for joining me today. We're going to talk a lot about working from home and the change that we're most likely going to see uh, in the office leasing space. Uh, but to start, you know, just talk about, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, Diamond Hill on March 13th, we, we made the decision that everyone uh, would be working from home. Uh, so we started that process and really it was, it was fairly seamless. Uh, and at this point, and we're talking, you know, near the end of May, that we're not going to be going back into the office until uh, probably early July. And so that begs the question that, you know, is this going to be the new normal? Because what we've learned is that, you know, we don't all have to be in the office. You know, we like to be in the office, but um, we don't have to be in the office to get our jobs done. So, so Josh, I'll ask you, my first question is that, you know, in your humble opinion, uh, do you think that working from home uh, is going to be the new normal? I think it's going to be something that's um, increasingly going to be adopted by a lot of companies, certainly initially. Um, you know, as the piece discusses, there is, you know, a, a lot of movements right now where you're seeing big companies, you know, Twitter and Facebook are probably the most notable in the last week and a half that have said, this experiment has worked out really, really well. And we're, you know, we're going to be a lot more flexible about allowing people to work from home because, you know, so far it's been seamless and everybody's been able to, you know, get everything accomplished to get everything accomplished that they wanted. So I think initially you're going to see a lot of people allowing more work from home as, it, as, as, as the world returns to normal. I think more and more companies are going to be open-minded to experiment with that and say, okay, you know, in the case of Diamond Bill also, if more, more and more people want to work at home, then let's, let, you know, let, let's do an experiment even once the world is getting back to normal and, you know, allow them to, you know, to try that out. And then everybody's going to evaluate it. You know, to, to, to some degree, I think we're all working under really, really extraordinary conditions right now. Um, and in some ways, that's, you know, that's better for productivity because everybody right now has kind of been thrown into a completely new situation. And there's so much going on in the market. There's so much going on that's new. Um, let's really make sure that, that this works. And you know, for a lot of people also, they're at home with spouses, with parents, with children, with others, um, you know, which probably only contributes to that feeling of, you know, I've got to get work done and I've got to carve out my own time and, and, and my space so I can be really focused. I think once the world starts getting back to normal where not everybody's at home, certainly kids are back in school, um, I think that will probably be a better way to evaluate if this, if this works, but I definitely think a lot of companies will be willing to experiment with that. 
So let's pivot to assuming, you know, we're at the, we're at the end of this, this event and we start to return somewhat to normal. Um, what are your thoughts on what a return to the office may look like? You know, will, will, will buildings be different? Will offices be different? You know, what are your thoughts there? I, I think a lot of it depends on the company and how much, you know, cross-pollination, for lack of a better word, people do when they're in the office. In other words, are they just working with smaller, narrow teams, or are they working across a bunch of different disciplinary groups? So, <clears throat> for example, you know, I, I think right now there's, there's going to be a small subset of people who will say, I need to get out of the house. I do my work much, much better in the office, and I, and I really can't focus at home. I'm going to come to the office. Um, let's call that 10 to 20% of the workforce population. Um, I think you probably have another 10 to 15% who say, I really don't ever want to come back to the office or I'm, or I'm only going to come back on extremely rare occasions. Um, but if you look at everybody else, the, you know, the, the middle 50 to you know, 80% to set, you know, depending on how you're making those assumptions, I think for a lot of those people, it's really um, some very circular logic as to whether to come back or not. Because I think for a lot of us, I want to come back, but I don't want to come back just to see one person in the office. I want to come back to see 20 people in the office and be able to talk to them. But if I'm only going to come back and there's only, you know, let, let's say 30% of, you know, the, the, the company back or 50% of, of, of the company back and only four out of the 10 people, just to make up a number of the people who, who are there that I want to see, maybe I'm just going to stay at home. You know, that becomes it's either its own virtuous or vicious cycle where people will say, oh, okay, eight out of my 10 friends are coming, so I'm gonna to come to and now all 10 of us are here. Or people are gonna say, oh, only two of us are here and I'm one of those two, Never mind. I'm just gonna stay home. So a lot of it, I think, is just gonna be driven by some of the social dynamics initially um, of people saying, you know, that's, I've heard from a lot of different people saying, we're gonna come back at only 50% of capacity. I really just don't think that's true because of those dynamics. I think we're either gonna be at 10% of capacity or 80 to 90% of capacity. Um, but, you know, Doug, to your point also, it, it's not so easy right now to come back at 90% of capacity. Um, if you have a high-rise 40-story office building with five, 10,000 people working in that building a day and only four people are allowed in an elevator, um, and you're in a place like New York where most people are starting work between the hours of, call it, seven and nine in the morning, that's going to be really difficult just to accommodate all those people in the elevators and then going to lunch and then leaving, you know, so people aren't going to want to come to the office if you have to wait in line for an hour in the elevator um, to leave and, you know, to, to, to get to the office and to leave the office. Um, you know, initially accommodating social distancing, you know, but I think, I think there's a lot of people who are just going to say, hey, to, to, to commute an hour each way on a train, perhaps, and sit, in, sit at a desk by myself with a mask on and not talk to any of my colleagues, that's just not worth it at all. So let's, let's drill down into what you were just saying, but take it from a different standpoint. So we've talked about the tenants coming back, um, but your area of focus is commercial real estate. You know, what about, um, you know, the, the firms that are running these buildings, you know, what, what steps are they going to have to take? So say we do get uh, to the point where people are coming back into the office and you're at, let's say, 50 to 60% capacity, but even before they get back there, what kind of things need to be done and are these companies, one, prepared to do so, and two, even financially capable of doing so to make sure that we can, whether it's maintaining social distancing or, or just the, the healthcare aspects that we've had to implement since this whole thing started a couple of months ago? I think they're very prepared to do that financially and operationally. Um, for them, it would be more about the lobby. 
since each tenant, you know, controls either their own floor or if the floors are subdivided, they would control their own space. Um, you know, a, a lot of that would be the landlord working with the tenant to say, do you have adequate space already within your offices? Um, you know, a landlord cannot unilaterally go to a tenant and say, we're going to force you to, to have everybody in your offices sitting 10 feet apart from each other, because essentially the tenant controls that space. You know, you couldn't control that any more than an apartment landlord can control, you know, how many people you bring into your apartment. So I, I think that would be difficult for them to do. What they can do is control the ingress and egress points, mm -hmm. you know, temperature checks, hand sanitizer, um, you know, uh, promoting distancing within elevators, trying to stagger those times better, certainly running their elevators much more frequently, maybe investing in, you know, just um, automated elevator systems that could make those sort of things much easier. Um, and probably also working with their tenants to, to, to coordinate what time people are coming in. Because I think the, the landlords really want to make the reopening a easy experience for their tenants. And if a lot of people are going to come in day one and stand in an elevator line, you know, for an hour, everybody's going to say, forget it, this is silly. I'm just going home and I'm not coming back again. So I think in advance of the office is opening. And, you know, for an office like ours in Columbus, where people can take the stairs and we only have six or seven floors and, you know, you're maybe not having everybody coming at the same time because there's a, there's a lot of different industries in the building. I think for a building like ours, it's a lot less problematic initially. But for taller buildings in 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 bigger metropolitan areas, certainly, um, they're going to have to really be proactive at working with their tenants in advance to make sure that they can figure out who's coming and you know what times and try to make that as pleasant an experience as possible and certainly as safe an experience as possible. Um, you know, temperature checks, sand, hand sanitizer, and maybe, you know maybe over time things like contactless doors and elevators. Um, that's probably going to be something that you know, it initially helps a lot of people feel much safer about being back in the office once they're there. So one of the things that you talk about in your piece is, uh, you know, the potential decline in leased office space would mimic what we've seen in brick and mortar retail, um, which has led to lots of empty buildings. Malls are difficult to repurpose. If you have to take a big enclosed mall and you think about just, you know, the, the, the classic anchor with inline space, you know, in the middle, it is a big building. Um, you, it, it doesn't lend itself naturally to, you know, to, to, to carving off parts of it for something else, right? Even if you take one side and turn it into, you know, an apartment building or an office, um, you know, the inline space needs to be repurposed. The food court maybe is going to be different. The anchors, the, it, it, it is difficult and very, very expensive um, usually to repurpose that. With office buildings and, and office buildings in, especially in, in, in big areas that people still want to live in. So, you know, maybe not New York, right? In other words, if nobody wants to be, you know, you know, coming into New York because it's becoming much less vibrant, that's fine. But maybe downtown San Francisco, you know, certainly, you know, the west side of Los Angeles, um, where you know people do like to live. You're close to the beach. You're in, you know, you're you're in a nice area. Um, I, it, it seems to be a lot easier if you have a good Class A office building. It's not cheap, but you can repurpose that as apartments without losing a substantial portion of your asset value. Um, especially if those apartment markets stay decently vibrant. You know, again, if, if you're just going to see massive out-migration from cities, it kind of doesn't matter. But, you know, ass assuming that the cities are, are only going to see a slower trickle, um, you know, th those are cities that have, you know, that have really suffered from a dearth of affordable housing for a long time. So, you know, the, the ability to not only turn, you know, potentially vacant retail sites into affordable housing, but to take some of the office stock and turn it into affordable housing. Um, it's just something that adds housing options to a market that has been housing starved for a long time.
And maybe that's not great for rents, certainly not in the short term, but over the long term, it seems that you know, having more and more people having affordable access to live in a big, attractive city can only be a positive for that city and for its residents. You know, so when it comes to things like physical office, look, one thing that's almost certain, and you see this in every economic cycle, sublease space starts to increase. So companies that took a decent amount of speculative space or just you know, a decent amount of space thinking that they'd have a bigger workforce initially in the first, and you're seeing it even right now, are just looking to sublease their space. Um, and that puts pressure on rents because companies that sublet space are willing to sublease some of their own space at lower rent than what would have been market even three months ago. Then you're going to see companies that either aren't going to make it or taking less space when their leases expire, companies that go out of business. So, you know, the, the, the natural thing that happens to office companies almost at, at almost every point in the cycle is not only the sublease space increase, but your actual direct vacancy increases. Um, and if you're in a market where your occupancy is getting lower, you really lose rental, re rental power for some period of time. Um, and I think the question in, in, in this particular case is if we're going to see the work from home movement become bigger and bigger to the point that companies really radically resize their office footprint, that's just going to, you know, to, to, to be something that keeps the pressure on for a very long time. Um, you know, you have office companies that are operating in high 80s to low to mid 90s percent, you know, percentage occupied. Um, you know, if that number becomes a, you know, high 70s to low 80s, it's a much less attractive business to be in. So, you know, you, at, at that point, you know, you're just, it, it's a rock fight for occupancy and nobody's growing rents, which is not, the, you know, not, not the recipe for a particularly successful business. I, I think it's really something that, you know, we, we, we have to watch. I think if you're if you if you have a transitional you know type of office where you were trying to, to to turn an old class B into a class A and you needed market rents to increase and you need to increase your occupancy, you're probably in a lot worse spot than some of the office REITs who have big stabilized buildings. But you know it's really going to depend a lot on the market that you're in, how much new supply there is, how what 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 is the local residential demand, what do the local tenants think about commuting, how convenient is your commute. You know, I, I think the next two to three years, even once we get into a recovery, even if we have a vaccine tomorrow, you know, we, we've opened the Pandora's box, so to speak, for having, you know, more and more work from home. And I think there's going to be an experiment with that. So one of the things that we talked about um, was mass transit. And, you know, here in Columbus, we don't really think about it um, because everybody kind of commutes, they drive into the office. There's no real kind of you know, mass transit that's available. Uh, that reaches all the different suburbs, but in, in places like New York and San Francisco and Boston that rely very heavily on that mass transportation, do you think that because as you mentioned, Pandora's box has been opened, that there will be maybe an exodus from you know these cities because people don't want to make that commute on the train or on the bus around a bunch of other people because of what we've gone through over the last couple of months and what will that do uh, to some of the smaller cities? Yeah, I, I think initially that, you know, that, 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 that could, you know, have the potential, you know, especially in the markets that, you know, that you say, you know, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., um, maybe San Francisco, maybe some others, um, you know, there, there's definitely the potential for, you know, that to be problematic. You know, some have speculated that, you know, for, if you think about New York City, right, the, the markets that a lot of people will commute in from would be Westchester County, Long Island, Northern New Jersey, you know, per, perhaps the suburban office space there becomes you know, a, a more attractive spot because if, you were, if you're commuting in from, you know, suburban Connecticut or suburban Westchester County every day, now you can drive 15 minutes to a smaller satellite office um, as opposed to taking a train for an hour into the city every day. You know, I, I, I do think there's, 
you know, th th there's going to be that that rethinking. But you know, as we kind of caution in our piece, there is there there's some pretty severe consequences if we go down that path, right? If you think of a place like New York, you think of you know downtown Manhattan is not just office buildings, but there's restaurants, there's gyms, there's bars, there's you know, there, there's all sorts, there, there's museums, there's nightlife, you know, people I think are attracted to live in that city just because of how vibrant it is, how much, how, how much is going on. And if you really take away a lot of the daytime traffic, which probably ends up being a decent amount of the nighttime traffic as well, you know, you, you can really have a very negative effect on, you know, not just the New York office market, but the New York apartment market. You know, at, at some point, if you're just commuting, you know, or, or you're working out of home in New Jersey, you say to yourself, Gosh, why do I have to pay the highest property taxes in, in, in the country? Why am I continuing to you know, live in a city that probably doesn't have the greatest weather in the country and pay high taxes to do it? Um, if I'm really not going to the office at all, why don't I just leave you know, the entire tri-state area and move to Florida or Texas or Tennessee or somewhere? Um, you know, and, and what, and what, what knock-on effect does that have you know, on small businesses and on, you know, the restaurant industry and on the apartment industry and on, and, you know, and then on the storage industry and then pretty much on every commercial property at that point. And if commercial property themselves is, is, is really taking a major revenue hit that hollows out a lot of a metropolitan area's tax base, you know, the, the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, which, which, which operates a lot of the subways and, you know, the, the other commuter railroads, you know, if they're going to be at 50% ridership where they used to be at 80 or 90% ridership, that's going to have very severe consequences for the taxpayers of places like New York State and, and, and the state of New Jersey and Connecticut, among others. You know, I, I, I think, you, you know, it, it's almost easier to say, well, office won't come back. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that's not going to happen, but I think there are some, you know, some pretty dark consequences for, you know, that happening. I don't think New York becomes a zombie town. You know, it still is one of the most vibrant, you know, cities in America and probably in the whole world. But you know, there, you know, for, for a state already that, and, and a city that, you know, had some difficulty with their municipal and state level finances, um, this could cause a lot of problems, you know, and, and then themselves, right, you know, if the remaining residents at some point, you know, they're going to have to pay for, you know, the additional taxes, and at some point does that, you know, create even more outflows? I, I don't know the answer, but I kind of fear the consequences. <laughs> So last question for you, high level, you know, how does this impact the overall REIT industry? Most of the REIT industry, I think, has been focused on big cities and the surrounding areas because the urbanization trend has really been very, very strong for the last 25 years. So I don't think it's an overstatement to say if the urbanization trend is going to reverse in a major way, um, that, that, that that has probably negative consequences for almost every property sector over the next 10 years. Again. I think that's probably a bridge too far. Um, I do think we still have, you know, big vibrant cities. I, I, I think it's possible that there could just be some negative adjustments in the short run. But as long as those cities generally stay vibrant, it seems like the, the, you know, the properties there should still be fine. But, you know, maybe for a time they just lose their premium over, you know, cities like, you know, Columbus um, or elsewhere. Well, Josh Barber, read analyst for Diamond Hill. I appreciate your time. I also... Uh, appreciate the movie reference, A Bridge Too Far. Uh, very good about Market Garden. I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, but thank you for your time. I really appreciate you coming on with me. And hopefully the next time we do this, uh, we're sitting in our office in Columbus. But as we just talked about, that may be not for quite a while. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me on. I hope to see everybody back in the office soon. Um, and I hope everybody is staying healthy and uh, doing well during this, during this time. 
This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.